Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Andrew Russell. You know, it was prominent uh, French literary figure Charles Baudelaire that famously wrote, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he... Yes, he did not exist. He did not exist. It's uh, been a very famous uh, quote. It's been um, passed down. You can see it in some movies. I remember hearing that for the first time in a movie that I watched when I was younger. Um, But it came from Charles Baudelaire. And in unpacking that statement... A gentleman by the name of Bill Brooks was a Stafford University student majoring in history, economics and political science. He explained of that statement. He said, the major premise of this statement is that the devil is a real, not a fictional creature. That he's real, not fictional. And that he's active in the world, corrupting men and women and causing them to turn away from God. And he went on, he said, the minor premise is that the devil has perpetuated modern skepticism about the supernatural. He's made people skeptic about the supernatural world, about the reality of spiritual beings. And of course, the devil is a fallen angel. He's a spiritual being. So he says, the minor premise is that the devil has perpetuated modern skepticism about the supernatural including his own existence. And the conclusion is that this scepticism has caused otherwise godly men and women to let down their guard. Notice, even godly men and women to let down their guard and made them more vulnerable to the devil's temptations. That's a pretty good evaluation of that statement by Baudelaire, isn't it? Well, Look, both Brooks and Baudelaire were just echoing what the Bible has been telling us all along, okay? Behind the scenes of humanity's existence, Satan is at work sowing corruption in a bid to turn men and women, even godly men and women, away from God. That's his sole purpose. Turn away from God, and guess what? He gets the glory. He gets the glory. And this is precisely what we see in Daniel chapter 7 as we broach the topic of the Antichrist. As we broach the topic of the Antichrist. So, turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Have it open there. Okay, I've got some statements, some biblical statements on the screen here for you to make it a little bit easier. Because we've got a lot to get through today. And this is not the end of it either. Okay? As you know, the course of this year, we've been working through the book of Daniel. And uh, we're up to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is where you know, this topic of the Antichrist uh, really begins to unfold in greater detail. It actually begins in Daniel chapter 2. It actually begins in Daniel chapter 1, if you really think about it. Okay? But Daniel chapter 7 starts to uh, show us uh, really... Uh, the uh, starts to unveil who the Antichrist is, particularly 
uh, from the time of Christ and down to the end of time. Okay, so it's a controversial topic for some. And there are all kinds of ideas of who the Antichrist is. I've seen Donald Trump's picture on the internet being labeled the Antichrist. Another time was Saddam Hussein. Some are saying the Antichrist is some figure that's going to come up in the near future. Um, uh, we don't know who that person is, but, but he will come up. But the Bible gives us information and helps us to unveil who the Antichrist is. So let's read Daniel 2 and verse 3. Here it is on the screen for you. It says, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea. Four great beasts came up from the sea. All right, so Daniel envisioned. Daniel, of course, is a prophet of the Lord. As we studied the book of Daniel, we found out that God gave that gift to Daniel, okay, in Daniel chapter 1 because of his faithfulness. And the prophet was one that God spoke to through visions and dreams. And God was able to reveal things to them, even the future. And this is what we find in Daniel chapter 2, um, and uh, sorry, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 2 and 3. goes on and says, after this, this is from verse 7 now, because we've covered this previously, but I just want to backtrack a little bit. So there were four beasts that Daniel saw rising up out of the sea. Verse 7, he says, And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had what? It had ten horns. It had ten horns. Okay. He goes on. Verse 8, he says, And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots or destroyed. Pluck up something by the roots, it's going to die. Okay? And behold, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking what? Great things or making great claims, we could say. Okay? So you notice I've highlighted a little bit there for you already. It says among them, uh, so among those ten horns what came up another little horn um, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots, and others that had power to pluck up three of the ten. And in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, previously, as we'd studied this together, we already found out about some of the symbolism. We do not have to guess as to what the Bible's talking about when it talks about beasts and horns. And some people don't really know what to think when they read those things, but if you actually just read a little bit further on, you'll find out that Daniel himself is given that understanding of what he is seeing. Okay? So look with me in Daniel chapter 7 of your Bible. Look at verse 23 right quick. Just go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. Notice what it says here. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth what? Kingdom that shall arise. Isn't that right? The fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall um, be different or diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall break it down, and break it in pieces. So when, when the Bible speaks about these beasts that Daniel saw, it's referring to kingdoms that will arise. And the fourth beast was the fourth kingdom that will arise. And it's talking about breaking and trampling down the whole earth. It's got global language here. This is global language. 
And so last time when we met, we already established that the beast that Daniel is seeing, and when you read on in Daniel chapter 7, you find it talks about a lion, a bear, a leopard, okay, and then this beast with ten horns and iron teeth. We, find, we found out that that was a parallel to Daniel chapter 2, where God had given a dream to King Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interpreted for him, and it showed the rise of kingdoms or successive world empires. Successive world empires which is quite incredible because this is Bible prophecy and Daniel is living in the time of the kingdom of Babylon, which was that first world empire that you can see there, 605 to 538 BC. It's around 600 years before Christ came. And when Daniel receives his vision in Daniel 7, this is the time that he's living in. But notice that there were four kingdoms, right? There were four kingdoms. The fourth kingdom was the kingdom with iron teeth and ten horns. And so we find there the fourth world, four world empires and you and I have the blessing of history where we can confirm what Daniel was shown. That there have been exactly four world empires, no less, no more, in the context of scripture and particularly to, to do with the children of Israel. Babylon was succeeded by Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia was succeeded by Greece and Greece was succeeded by Rome. Greece was succeeded by Rome. So beasts represent kingdoms. Let's read verse 24. Remember the fourth kingdom had ten horns. It says in verse 24, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them. And he shall be different or diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. There's that little horn again. But we know from history that the Roman Empire did not continue as a world empire. It was broken down by invading barbarian tribes. You notice there the feet where it says divided nations. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Rome was invaded, particularly the western part of the Roman Empire, and these barbarian tribes conquered that territory. And so when the Bible talks about the ten horns out of the, four, out of the fourth kingdom, it's showing the breakup of that western Roman Empire because horns represent what? Kingdoms, right? The ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And we talked about last time how these kingdoms, notice there there's the Franks, there's the Anglo-Saxons, that's a term people are common, still commonly known today, Lombards and so forth. We talked about how these kingdoms largely became what we know as Western Europe today. Okay? So the Franks are the French, the Lombards are the Italians, the Anglo-Saxons are the... The English, yeah. I had a lady ask me yesterday where I was from, uh, what my background was, and I said to her, well, mum's from St. Helena, tiny island of the west coast of Africa. So that's mum's side, and then dad's side's England, England, the Anglo-Saxons. So I've got some Anglo-Saxon blood in me. So God is foretelling not only the rise of world empires, but the breakup of the Roman Empire and even the divided nations of Europe as we know it today. In other words, the prophecy now becomes applicable even to the time that we are living in. God sees our time. God sees you and me. He's not limited by time, space and matter. He's able to move beyond our limitations. And so, we're going to jump now, because as we read further now, 
um, God goes into great detail to reveal just who this little horn Antichrist power is. Now, Antichrist simply means this, against Christ or in the place of Christ. So anything that is against Christ or assumes to take the place of Christ is Antichrist. That makes sense? Fairly simple definition. Let's read Daniel 7 verse 24 to verse 27. Notice it says, And he shall speak great words against the who? Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they, that is the saints, shall be given into his hand until a time, times, and the dividing of time. Okay. Let's read verse 26 and 27. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. Verse 27, and this was our memory verse. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That's God's people. Whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. So we're dealing now with this little horn power. I want to recap what we have just read here. I've put it in point form so we can follow it very clearly. This distinguishing marks regarding this little horn power. Little horn being a kingdom because the horns represent kingdoms. Okay? So that's the, I mean, right there, you ought to know already when it talks about the Antichrist, it has to do with the kingdom. But let me go through it with you. Number one, it comes up among the ten kingdoms of divided Rome. Isn't that right? You saw that, didn't you? Okay, the fourth kingdom would divide, represented by the ten horns. This little kingdom comes up amongst the ten kingdoms of divided Rome. We notice that it is a little kingdom. It's a little horn. I told you God's very detailed and very specific. Number three, it plucked up three of the ten kingdoms by the roots. Do you remember that? Plucked up three of the ten kingdoms by the roots. In other words, it destroyed three of those ten kingdoms. Again, I say to you and I have the benefit of history. I'm going to show you who it is. And it's, it's, there's no way you can mistake who this power is. Number four, it had a man at its figurehead. Remember, Daniel saw in vision... It had a man with eyes and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, So it had a man as a figurehead. Um, it speaks great words against the Most High. So it comes against God. It's intentional, intentionally coming against God. Remember, we talked about Satan causing men to believe that he doesn't exist. Satan doesn't jump out, does he? Does he jump and go, here I am? No, he doesn't do that. He works through the affairs of men. He works to secure his purposes. Number six, it would wear out the saints or God's people. That word wear out is the Hebrew word belad, means trouble and afflict. Some Bible translations just put it as persecute. He would persecute this power would persecute God's people. Number seven, think to change 
times and laws. And in the context, because he comes against God, it would have to be God's times and laws. In other words, he comes against the government of God. He comes against the government of God. Because law has to do with government and authority. And number eight, God's people will yield to him for, you notice what I put there? Three and a half prophetic years. Three and a half prophetic years. Now you didn't read that in your Bible, but I'll explain that as we move on. So I'm going to quickly go through now, and I'm going to let you know who this kingdom is. Now I know some of you know, we've studied this before. But what I'm sharing with you is not unique to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This is long-standing, centuries-old knowledge that many Christians possessed, but many have forgotten about these days. Many have forgotten. No, not not that they've just forgotten. They've been taught something else. They've been taught something else. But when you see all the identifying marks... There's no mistaking who this little horn kingdom is. And so I'm going to tell you that the Bible here is referring to the papacy or the Roman papacy or the Vatican or the Roman Catholic Church. I'm going to say that straight off the bat. But now you know when a pastor makes such claims, you know, he better support it, right? (laughs) He better put his money where his mouth is. And, and this is not pointing the finger at any particular person or people. That's not what the Bible is doing. The Bible is unveiling the workings of Satan through systems, through governments, through organizations, as the Bible has always done. Because prior to Daniel chapter 7, if you just study your Bible and you look at the history of the children of Israel, you'll notice that Satan was working through other nations. He wanted to destroy God's people and God had to come to their protection. Kings rose up to destroy God's people. And so this is nothing new. But let me share with you a bit of history so you can understand. Okay, This is from the ancient encyclopedia, ancient history encyclopedia I should say. Notice what it says here. And I shared this when I studied Daniel 2 with you, but we'll go through it again. It says the old empire, talking about the Roman empire, it's talking about its breakup now. So here's the encyclopedia. The old empire was ravaged, among others by Burgundians, Angles, Saxons, Lombards. To many historians, the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century AD has always been viewed as the end of the ancient world and the onset of what? The Middle Ages. What's another term for the Middle Ages? Or the Dark Ages. That's right. And I remember studying this at high school when I did ancient history. So with the fall of the Roman Empire, historians recognize that that's the end of the ancient world as they know it, okay? And the onset of the Middle Ages. Historians generally agree on the year of the fall, that's the Roman Empire, as what? Can you read it there? 476 AD. Very important that you note that. Very important that you note that. 476 AD. Notice it goes on, it says, during the same era... Old institutions and traditions from consuls to chariot races slowly vanished away. The Senate, whose real power had faded centuries earlier, was the last to go. The Pope, who took the title of Pontifex Maximus, or chief priest, that had been used by Western Roman emperors, became what? Became the city's ruler. 
Wow. Is the Pope still ruling from that city today, yes or no? Absolutely. Absolutely. Notice. Let's read on. His highest clergy wore silk slippers, which had been a privilege of Roman of Rome senators. It was at this time that classical Rome became transformed to medieval papal Rome. Remember, the little horn rises out among those ten divisions or the breakdown of the Roman Empire. Okay? And so we have a geographical location for the rise of this little horn power. It rises in Western Europe on the ruins of the ancient world Roman Empire. Okay? Roman Empire continued, but not as a, a global power any longer. But the seat of Rome was handed over to the Bishop of Rome, who became, who was known as the Pope, okay, and still known today. Um, let me share with you. Now remember, when did Rome fall? When do historians date the? 476 AD. Notice as I go on here. This is a statement here, okay? This is a statement from a Roman emperor regarding the Pope and the establishment of his power. Listen to what he says, or the Bishop of Rome. This is a, let, me, let me quote for you. This is a quote. Therefore, we have exerted ourselves to unite all the priests of the East and subject them to the see of your holiness. That's a term that the Pope still has today. Okay? So the Roman Emperor is saying, he's addressing the Pope, and he says, listen, the state, the Roman state now, okay, which is largely in the East now, we're, we're uniting all the priests of the East, and they're all going to be made subject to you, to the sea of your holiness, because you are the head of what? All the holy churches. For we shall exert ourselves in every way, as has already been stated, to increase the honor and authority of your see. We therefore decree, the decree now, that the most holy Pope of the elder Rome is the first of all the priesthood, and that the most blessed Archbishop of Constantinople, the new Rome, shall hold the second rank after the holy apostolic chair of the elder Rome. That's Codex Justinian. It's known as the Code of Justinian in the history books. It was Justinian who established the Bishop of Rome effectively establishing as the Pope and overseer of all churches through the Roman Empire, okay, and effectively establishing Roman Catholicism to be the power that it continued to be through the centuries. And it all began here. That would be like, that would be like Scott Morrison. Who's Scott Morrison? Our Prime Minister of Australia. Coming to visit Dundas Church and then coming up here and addressing all of you and through the cameras addressing everyone else and saying, Pastor Andrew Russell is now going to be the overseer of all the churches in Australia. Do you think everyone would be happy about that? Have you no faith in me? <laughs> <laughs> Come on! <laughs> no, they wouldn't like that. Because that's not how God worked and that's not how the Christian church was established. That's not how the, the church was not established for one man to be the overseer of all the church. 
the only man that was established to be the overseer of all the church was? Was the Lord Jesus Christ. Was the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible describes the church as the body and Christ is the head and he's the chief cornerstone of the church. And when this happened, many of the other bishops in the Roman Empire were very, very unhappy at the thought of this. But guess what? When you've got the backing of the state behind you, when this becomes a decree, it becomes a criminal offence to not recognise what the Roman emperor has established. And there were those that refused to recognise because this was not a biblical doctrine. This was not, didn't come from a biblical foundation. This came from the seat of the Roman emperor. It was a political, politically charged decision. Do you know how we know it was a politically charged decision? Because Rome did not do away with any of its other pagan worship, uh, pagan gods and other worship systems. It didn't do that when it embraced Christianity. It didn't do that. It incorporated. It did the opposite. It incorporated some of those worship systems and then labelled it Christianity. Okay? So it wasn't something that was ordained from God. And here we have a picture of the Vatican. It is a little nation or kingdom in Western Europe, an independent country population. In 2017, it was only what? Around about 1,000 people. We grew a little bit more now. But that's how small. Did the Bible say it was going to be a little kingdom? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's only 44 hectares large. Okay? So small. I visited over there. How is it that a kingdom so small could have such power that even the kings and queens of this world visit the Vatican, visit the papacy, and visit the Pope. Let me go on with you. Remember it said it destroyed three of the ten kingdoms? Okay. This was known as the Arian Controversy. And here's a quotation from Theodoric, king of the Ostrogoths. Okay. Now the Arian Controversy... There were three of those ten kingdoms. For time's sake, I'm not going into all the details here, but you can read up on this. They, they believed something other than the Roman Catholic Church or the Bishop of Rome believed in terms of its biblical doctrine. Okay? And because of that, because of that, the Bishop of Rome was not happy about it. The Bishop of Rome expected that because it was the uplifted to be the head of all the churches, okay, that others had to conform to the doctrines of Rome, okay, in the Roman kingdom. And because of that, there was war, and the Roman emperor now would support the bishop of Rome, and he would go and destroy whoever the bishop of Rome felt was an enemy of Rome. And so Theodoric, here's a statement from him, he says, those who do not profess, profess the faith of Nice are heretics to him. And in this context, he's talking about Justin, who was the predecessor of Justinian, who established the Code of Justinian. And those who do are heretics to me. Theodoric, king of, the Ost of Ostrogoths, to Pope John of Rome. That's written in the book History of the Popes. So we find there's a controversy there, and uh, the um, Theodoric, the Ostrogoth king, 
says, look, if the emperor and the bishop's coming against me and I'm an enemy, then guess what? You're going to be an enemy of me as well and my people. But unfortunately, the Ostrogoths did not win that battle. They were conquered, they were destroyed, they were uprooted. And so you see there in the red, there were three kingdoms, all part of this Aryan controversy, the Ostrogoths, the Heruli, and the Vandals. And so we find that this particular aspect of the prophecy was fulfilled in exact detail. He would uproot three of the previous ten kingdoms that invaded Western Europe. Notice now, the Bible said that he would have a mouth that would speak great words against the Most High. How are we to understand that? Well, we just have to look at some of the claims that Roman Catholicism makes or that even the popes have made. Now, remember we talked about a man at its figurehead, a man at the head. Well, we find here succession. It's not so much the individual men, but it's this figurehead that continues generation after generation that holds the same position in Rome, holds the same power. And this is what Daniel says in vision. Look at this statement here. This is from the great encyclical letters of Leo, uh, Pope Leo. He says, We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Pretty Pretty big claim. I couldn't make that claim. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, what? Hidden under the veil of flesh. That was printed in the Catholic National, Catholic publication, July 1895. There are many such claims. I just wish we had more time. But as we continue in our series, more will come to light. I'm just sharing with you. Mount speaks great words against the Most High. What about this statement? This is from um, The Dignity and Duties of the Priest. The book, Dignity and Duties of the Priest. Notice it says the priest has the power of the keys. So if you look at Vatican City, if you visit there or if you look online, you'll always see the Pope's kind of tiara with two keys crossing over. Because Roman Catholicism believes that God established the Roman papacy and gave to the church the keys to the kingdom. Okay? And they claim that that was done through St. Peter through a through a misquote or a misapplication of Scripture where Jesus was speaking to Peter. Okay? And Jesus um, was asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? And some said, well, you're, some say you're John the Baptist that has come back from the dead. Or some say you may be Elijah. Or some people say you're some prophet or teacher. And Jesus said to themselves, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the blessed, the son of the most high God, right? And Jesus responded with, and I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Was Jesus calling Peter the rock? Oh, no, no, no. The rock was the profession that Peter had just made, that you are the Christ, the son of God. And all who will confess that, all that will come to Christ by faith and say, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God that gave your life for me, that becomes the foundation upon which your life is built and the church is built. That's the rock. And so we have this misappropriation of Scripture, Roman Catholicism claiming that it has the keys to the kingdom. What does that that allow then the church to do? Let's read on. 
The priest has the power of the keys or the power of delivering sinners from hell, of making them worthy of paradise, and of changing them from the slaves of Satan into the children of God. And God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priests. So, so what Christ does is not sufficient. What Jesus did is not sufficient. The church has to make the decision as to who is saved and who is lost. The church decides who goes to heaven. You don't believe that? You just have to look at the canonization of saints. Where the church decides, well, you know, Mary McKillop, you know, she was a good Catholic woman, she probably did some good stuff, you know, we're going to canonize her saint, we're going to relegate her to heaven. And you can pray to Mary McKillop now. See that? Last I checked, but they were just men, they're not God. Okay. So these are the kinds of blasphemous claims that are made. God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priests. The sovereign master of the universe only follows the servant by confirming in heaven all that the latter decides upon earth. So God agrees with whatever the priesthood ultimately decides. Go with me to Revelation chapter, in your Bibles, Revelation, Revelation chapter 13. Because this same beast power is being talked about in Revelation 13. You see, John, when John comes on the scene and John is given the gift of prophecy, he picks up on the visions of Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Well, let's read verse 4 and 5. It gives a little bit more context. It says, And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the who? To the beast. What's a beast? A kingdom. Who gives power to the kingdom? The dragon. Who's the dragon? That's Satan, isn't it? Satan, yeah. He, he has the spirit of Antichrist. That's right, the devil. In Revelation um, 12, you find that that's the dragon is Satan in verse 9. Okay, But then it goes on and says, Who is like unto the beast? In other words, who is like unto this kingdom? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So you can see the parallel there between Revelation 13 and Daniel chapter 7. When he speaks great things, he speaks blasphemy. Do you know that Jesus was accused of blasphemy? Let me share with you, in the context of the Scriptures, what Jesus was accused of when they labelled him blasphemous. John 10, verse 30 verse to 33, says, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? And they replied, For blasphemy. And because you being a man makes yourself God. So when this kingdom speaks great words against the Most High and speaks blasphemy against the Most High, it claims to be, it claims to have God. It claims to have the same prerogatives that God has. Now, did Jesus have those same prerogatives as God? Yes or no? Absolutely. Absolutely, he did. And we see, we see what he, he did with that prerogative with that authority in Luke chapter 5 verse 21 where he's accused of blasphemy again. 
Bible says here in Luke 5.21, And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks? Blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But God alone. And so when this little horn kingdom now speaks blasphemies and great things and comes against God, you recognize now the Bible's foretelling that here will come a power that will claim in its own authority that it has power to forgive sins. It claims to have the prerogatives of God, to, to have the authority to relegate men to heaven or to hell. How do you think God feels about that? Why is Satan doing that? Why would he work in this way? Why would he work through a kingdom? Why would he establish what is being established here? The... Um, Apostle Paul, when he spoke of this Antichrist kingdom, listen to what he said. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He said, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. They were talking about the second coming of Jesus. That day shall not come, except there come a what? A falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So in the Greek language, the word for falling away is the word apostasia. It's the word apostasia. And where does apostasy take place when Paul's talking about it? He's talking to the church. He's writing to the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica, And he's saying, look, Christ will not come until there come a great apostasy in the church. A great falling away from what? From the truth. From the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Wow. Wow. Remember, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. You see, this Antichrist power, Satan is the ultimate Antichrist power. But this spirit of Antichrist has worked through the Roman pagan kingdom and produced the Roman papacy so that Satan works to deceive, the Bible tells us, even the elect. Even the elect of God. God's own people Satan works to deceive godly men and women who don't know the truth, who aren't being taught correctly the truth or the scriptures. And that's very sad. So that even the church is confused about who the Antichrist is. Some people say, oh, it was this Antiochus of Epiphanes. You know, we'll, we'll, look, we'll look at it. There's so many different claims out there as to who the Antichrist is. But when we follow the identifying marks, as God lays it out, it becomes very clear that Satan is working to deceive even the church and rob them, rob God's people of their salvation. Of their salvation. Remember the other identifying mark was to think to change God's time and law. Remember that? 
Here's an example, Roman Catholicism. And this is a, a reflection of what happens in the Roman Catholic Catechism. Now you know the Ten Commandments, right? We all know the Ten Commandments. Satan is very deceptive. I could quote you the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee... Anyone know the Second Commandment? Any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. Father, Lord your God, I am a jealous God. Okay? Right? That Second Commandment. We can go on. Third Commandment. Shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you will labor. Do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, manservant, maidservant. Okay, I'm going on. Just giving you a quick run through. And the reason I'm doing that is because when you look at this, you find that, that it doesn't read the way I've just given it to you, the way the Bible has the Ten Commandments. You notice it says here, the second commandment has been removed. The tenth commandment has been split in two. The Sabbath commandment has been shortened, so you don't know which day it is. And the church claims to have changed the Sabbath to the Lord's Day, which they say is Sunday. And if you ever wondered where Sunday tradition comes from, just look in the history books. Now, I went online and I had a look to see whether this was still the case today, because I know this was the case in the catechisms of old. So notice here, I looked up and here's the Catholic Archdiocese of Melbourne. Okay, they've got the Ten Commandments. There's a traditional catechetical uh, formula. It's from the Catechism. Okay, and you read there, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other strange gods before me. And then it's missing the second commandment that he says, you shall not take, uh, make unto you any graven image, carved images of any kind. You don't bow down to them or worship them. You don't do that. God forbid that. They've taken that out, and the third commandment's been moved up. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And to make up ten, they split the last commandment into commandment nine and ten, that actually um, is actually one commandment, and it says, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife, you shall not cover your neighbor's goods. So again, God establishes who would seek to pervert his law. Now, if God reveals who would pervert his commandments, then that tells us something very, very important about those commandments. What does it tell us? The commandments do not change. In fact, the commandments stand forever. Moses, when he asked God, show me your glory, God. You can read about that in the book of Exodus, 33 and 34. Show me your glory. Do you know the first thing God gave to him? He gave him the two tables of stone. Because in those commandments is revealed the character or the glory of God. And then God moved by him and proclaimed the practical outworkings of those ten commandments. As I did my research, I read in the, uh, in the, uh, in the catechism, because I, I actually downloaded a PDF for my, uh, my own um, resources, and I read in there what they said about the Ten Commandments. I was just curious. And it says that that commandment was the old law. How many are teaching today that that's the old law? That it's no longer relevant today? There's a new law in Christ. Oh, Jesus said, love your neighbor and love your God with all your heart. Jesus was actually quoting from the Old Testament. And Jesus was actually um, summarizing the Ten Commandments. 
Because the first four commandments deal with loving God. And the last uh, six commandments deal with loving your neighbor. And so, has this aspect of the prophecy been fulfilled? Yes or no? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here we find all the relics and graven images in Roman Catholicism. And if you're angry about what you're hearing here today, so you should be. But your anger should not be directed at God or the Bible or the, spokes, the spokesperson for truth. Your anger should be directed at Satan's deceptions and the lies that he has perpetuated. The Bible says uh, that my people, God says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. For a lack of knowledge. Ten Commandments are right there, plain as day, and that change has been made. Wear out and persecute God's people. I want to read you a statement from the Catholic Encyclopedia. So this is from Rome itself regarding people that it used to persecute during the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. Okay? It's often referred to as the Dark Ages because there seemed to be great ignorance. It seemed like many had become barbaric during that time and there was great ignorance and, and, and culture didn't flourish and religion didn't flourish as it should and you know, man didn't flourish during that, during that age. And that's because largely the scriptures were taken away from man. The scriptures were, I mean, there's nothing the devil wants more than to take the scriptures from us because it shines the light of truth. And so here, Rome speaks about many of the people that lived during that time. During that time. They were known as the Waldensians. These were Christians, Bible-believing Christians. They were known as Hussites. Um, they went by uh, various names, right? And they were a persecuted people, being persecuted by Rome. Listen to what the Catholic Encyclopedia says. Nearly all ecclesiastical legislation, that's the church's own laws. The Roman Catholic Church has its own laws and legal system, okay? Which it mixes politics with religion, okay? Near all ecclesiastical legislation regard to the repression of heresy, in other words, to put down heresy, proceeds upon the assumption that heretics are in willful revolt against lawful authority, that they are in fact apostates that have renounced the true faith. So if you do not agree with the faith of Roman Catholicism and its teachings, you are a heretic and then you are regarded as someone who is in willful revolt against lawful authority. I'd be classed as that today. And many of you. Goes on to say, it is easy to see that in the Middle Age this was not an unreasonable assumption. So the church says, this wasn't unreasonable for the church to think this. The church of God was then indeed as a city set upon a hill. No one could be ignorant of her claims. And if certain people repudiated her authority, it was by an act of what? Rebellion. This at least was the case with the Cathari, the Waldensians, the Albigenses, with the Lollards and the Hussites. It was still the case with the immediate followers of Luther, of Calvin, of Knox, and of the other early reformers. You know, we have the Lutheran Church. Now we have uh, the Methodist Church. We have, you know, these, these are all Protestant churches. And Rome is saying, look, the immediate followers of these men were also in willful revolt. 
Do you know why they say the immediate follows? Because today, Rome has been working to bring those churches back. To bring those churches back. And so, by a combination of church and state, the church now calling upon political leaders to enforce its dogmas, these people, no matter where they ran, if they ran to Spain, well, you know, the Queen and King of Spain, they were Catholic and they were going to do whatever the Pope said. If they ran over here or ran over there, the Pope could command that these people be taken care of, that they be brought into order. Listen to this historic statement. This is from the public and private history of the Popes of Rome. Know that the interest of the Holy See and those of your crown make it a duty to exterminate the Hussites. Remember that these impious persons dare proclaim principles of equality. They maintain that all Christians are brethren. The church laughs at that statement. We're not all equal, says Rome. We're not all brothers in Christ. Turn your forces. Turn your forces. He's speaking, particularly here, he's writing to the king of Poland. Okay? The Pope is writing to the king of Poland. Turn your forces against Bohemia. Burn, massacre, make deserts everywhere, for nothing could be more agreeable to God. Pope Martin to the king of Poland, 1429. Jesus was persecuted, wasn't he? Jesus answered, Thou, could have, thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greatest sin. Who was Jesus speaking to when he said this? Pilate, Pontius Pilate at this time. Pilate said, don't you know that I have power to end your life or to save it? Notice, that was the, that was the mindset of Rome. And Jesus said, you've got no power against me except it's given you from above, except you allow to do that. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greatest sin. Do you know who Jesus was referring to here when he says, Pilate, whoever's commissioning you, putting you in this position of authority has the greater, has the, um, greater sin? He was talking about Rome. Pilate, you're just a penman of Rome. And so we find that it was Rome that persecuted Christ and took the life of Jesus. The Roman power. The Roman power. Now it wasn't only the Roman power. Who else was it? Who else was it? I was waiting to hear that. The Jews. You know it actually wasn't the Jews. Do you know the correct interpretation of who it was? It was the church of the day. It was the church of the day. Jews implies a certain ethnicity, but, but the Jewish nation was made up of many people that were not even born Jews, that had come to faith in the living God. There were people and descendants from those people. Okay? It was actually the church and the Roman state that persecuted God's people. And God's people, it says, that would yield to him for a time, times, and dividing of time. And... Uh, this is our last identifying mark today. We've covered quite a lot today, but we needed to do this in detail, so you know. So remember, it would continue, this little horn, for time, times, and dividing of time. 
You notice I've put up there, it says three and a half prophetic years or 1260 prophetic days. And then I've got their day for year principle. Now, go with me to Revelation. Well, actually, while we're there in Revelation, let's go to Revelation 12. Let's go to Revelation 12. Because it talks about the persecution here of, um, of a woman. And in biblical prophecy, the woman here is, is representing the church. Revelation 12, verse 6. It says, And the woman fled into the wilderness. Revelation 12, verse 6. Where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and sixty days, or three score days. King James says, sixty days. Revelation 12, verse 14. It says, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into a place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time. From the face of the serpent. So time, times, and half a time. A time is just a year. It's a bit of the old language. Okay? Time is a year. Times is two years. And a half a time is a half a year. And within three and a half years, because that's what it equates to, it equates to 1,260 days in three and a half years. Not by our calendar today. Not by the Gregorian calendar. This is by the Jewish calendar. Of, of the days when the scriptures were written. And they went by 360 days in a year. And so you've got 1260 days. Now in Bible prophecy, each day, each day represents a year. Numbers 14 verse 34, I've got scripture there, you can read it. God told the people to spy out the land for 40 days. And when they re- rebelled against God and refused to go and inherit the promised land because they were fearful of the people there, God caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And he counted each day that they spied out the land as one year. The same thing happens again in Ezekiel 4 verse 6. And in Luke chapter 13 verse 32, you can see that Jesus himself summarizes his three plus years of ministry in, in three days. Okay, So this principle of day for year was even known by Jesus and taught by Jesus himself. Okay, When they said to, to uh, Jesus, you know, beware, King Herod will kill you, Jesus said, go and tell that old fox that, you know what, I'm doing this work today, and then tomorrow, and the third day, I'll be perfected. And he summed up his three years of ministry in three days. Because one day, in prophecy, talking about the future here, equals a year. So the Bible now tells us that this kingdom who would rise, this little horn kingdom that would rise in 538 AD. Do you remember that? That was after 476 when the Roman kingdom as a world empire ended. 538 AD, papacy is established. And from 538 AD, if you go 1260 years into the future, it brings us to 1798 AD. You notice there the term, the papacy is wounded. Well, what happened there was that in 1798, well, during that whole period of 1260 years, Papal Rome had that power and authority to persecute, to relegate who goes to heaven and who doesn't. It made kings and queens bow to it. There's a whole rich history there. Okay? Claim to exercise the prerogatives of God. 1260 years. But in 1798, we had the French Revolution... Napoleon Bonaparte came along and he saw that the Pope stood in his way of power and he dethroned the Bishop of Rome and cast him in prison. 
And for the first time in exactly 1260 years, as the timeline gave to us, Roman papacy lost its political power. Continued as a church, but it had no power whatsoever. Okay? Until 1929, when the Italian Prime Minister Mussolini signed a document that re-established Vatican City as we have it today. As we have it today. And so that power is there once again. And it's been growing. And the Bible talks about what will happen at the very end of time through this little horn, anti-Christ power, and what it will do. In regard to the little horn, let's read verse 26 and 27 again. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion, to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the who? To the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And so we find that the kingdom and dominion is given to the saints. You and I, by God's grace, have a share in that as well. We have a spirit of pride. We like to promote ourselves and, you know, you know, people just, we buy into all these things, don't we? To create a different image for ourselves than the one that God has planned for us. But the spirit of Christ was one of humility, was one of servitude, was one of self-renouncing and self-sacrificing love. And that's the kind of person I want to be. What about you? This message was made available by the Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.